Well, hello, class, and welcome to another episode of the TM366 Basic Christian Doctrine Podcast. Today, I will be going over Lesson 3.3 on Union with Christ. But in keeping with my random stories at the beginning of a podcast, because that's how a podcast should go, and on last week's theme of burritos, I thought I should share with you that shortly after recording last week's episodes, my wife surprised me with a breakfast burrito she picked up at Broadway Market. And I have to say, I need to retract my claim that the best burritos in town are at Dollar General. In fact, it's Broadway Market, then Dollar General, and then at the bottom, Sonic. So, still my apologies to Sonic. All right, now that that's been settled, let's talk for a minute about the idea of union with Christ. This is an important biblical concept and a concept that is foundational for uh, the other doctrines we'll be discussing over the coming weeks that make up what's known as the Ordo Salutis, which is Latin for the Order of Salvation. After we talk about the doctrine of the atonement, we need to ask the question how it is that the benefits that Christ has secured for us are actually applied to us. And for Protestants, at least, this language of union and this doctrine of union is fundamental to their understanding. Unfortunately, we will see in this doctrine, we begin to see, uh, or in these sets of doctrines of the Ordo Salutis, we begin to see greater division among Catholics, Protestants, and the Eastern Orthodox. So as we get there, I'll try and point them out as we go in subsequent lectures. For now, though, I want to start by summarizing where this comes from, where this doctrine of union comes from in the Bible. And to do that, I'm going to summarize a book called Paul and Union with Christ by Constantine Campbell. If you're following along in the PowerPoints, uh, that full book and bibliography information is found on slide four. We see four different themes or different ways in which Paul explains union with Christ in his writings in the New Testament. The first is the example of what's known as in Christ language. The second, into Christ language. The third is what's known as soon or with compounds. And the fourth are a series of theological metaphors that Paul uses. And Campbell walks us through each and every text in Paul's writings where he uses these and other means of discussing union. I'm going to summarize Campbell's book because I think it's an exceptional work on the subject, but a considerable part of it is in Greek. Uh, we're dealing with the Greek New Testament, so I thought I'd be kind and not assign you all to read it directly. Okay, so this idea of union, where does it come from? First of all, it comes from in Christ language in Paul. So it's interesting to note that 73 different times in Paul's letters, he uses this phrase. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Romans 8.1, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This raises the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? What could Paul mean here? Similarly, Paul will sometimes use the language of into Christ particularly in connection with baptism. So Galatians 3.27, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Third, in order to describe what Paul is thinking about when he discusses salvation, he has to actually invent some new Greek words. 
and he does so by cramming multiple Greek words together into a single word and including at the beginning a prefix soon, which in Greek just means with. So Paul talks about how we are crucified with Christ, soon astaromai, if you see it on the PowerPoints. I'm not going to make you know any of the Greek here, but it illustrates Paul has taken that word crucify and just jammed the prefix with at the beginning of it. I was with crucified in Christ. It was made alive together with Christ. I was raised up with Christ. I was seated with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I was raised with Christ and on and on and on. Paul uses this language to try and explain how salvation works, but it raises the question, how was I actually crucified with Christ? After all, I wasn't actually even alive yet at the time that Christ was crucified in the first century. And finally, Paul uses a number of different metaphors. Christ is the head and we are the body. Christ is the cornerstone of the building that all of us are a part of. And we should note that this sorts of language, it's found especially in Paul, but we see it elsewhere in the Bible. So in the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. In each of these examples, the metaphor illustrates that there's some kind of deep connection between Christians and between Christ. But we have to stop and try and figure out what this connection is. Well, unfortunately, in order to understand theologically what Paul means by union, it turns out that he means quite a lot. So if you're following along and you turn to PowerPoint slide number nine, you'll see that on slide nine and ten, there are actually nine different dimensions of what Paul means when he says we are in Christ or that we are Christ's body. So I'm going to walk us through each of these nine dimensions of union because they'll be pretty important for the rest of the class moving forward. But I don't expect you to memorize and remember all nine. If you know three or four of them for a midterm, excuse me, for a final exam, then you should be covered. Okay, so I'm going to walk through these nine and I'm going to try and help you understand what each of them mean. These nine come from Campbell, again, from his analysis of historical context and literary context and the actual Greek vocabulary that Paul is using in each and every instance where he speaks about union. The first thing Paul means is that we have had a change in location. And I need to explain that. He doesn't mean that when we are united to Christ that suddenly we all have to move to Alabama or something. But it's a bit more like this. Imagine that we go to war with Canada. Nobody saw it coming. Canada seems so friendly. Maple syrup and Mounties and all of that. But really, Canada has been planning this for years, and they attack, and they quickly defeat our military. It's distracted by other things, like COVID. Well, if that happens, maybe in the peace treaty, Canada requires the United States to give up control of Kansas so that Kansas is now a part of Canada. If that happens, for those of us who are still in Kansas at least, our physical location hasn't changed at all. And yet, in another sense, our location is completely different. We once were in the United States. Now, after being defeated by Canada and annexed, we are in a part of Canada. What's the byproduct of that? Well, we have new rights and new responsibilities. The healthcare system is different. 
Uh, we're now going to have the responsibility of including not only English but French uh, on certain things that are published in Kansas. Similarly, when Paul says we are in Christ, though our physical location hasn't changed, it's as if rather than being a part of the kingdom of this world, we are suddenly within the realm of Christ. And that leads to new rights and responsibilities because we're a part of a new spiritual location. So that's one key part of what Paul means by union. The second one is identification. Union results in our sharing the identity of Christ. In this sense, it's pretty similar to what Fairbairn has been talking about in terms of our sharing in the father-son relationship. Because I am united to Christ, when the father looks at me, he views me as a son because I am joined to his son. I receive that new identity. In a similar sense, when you are joined to Christ, you are viewed as sons and daughters of God for a similar reason, because you are joined with the Son. So location, identification. The third one is participation. This one is a bit more complicated to explain. But when Paul discusses the fact that we have been crucified with Christ and we have been resurrected with Christ, He's suggesting that the events that happened to Jesus are in some way, they, they in some way determine our life's content and structure. What Jesus did is a pattern for how we live now. At a spiritual level, the reality then is now our reality today if we are joined with Christ. So, how is that true? I think the best example I can come up with is to connect participation with a major event in our national history. And this isn't quite the same, but it illustrates certain facts. So if we imagine 9-11, the terrorist attacks on 9-11, some of you may not have even been alive then. Others of you were quite young. I was a teenager. So I experienced the events more directly than many of you probably did. And yet, even though maybe you weren't alive at the time of these events, or maybe you were so young that you weren't conscious of them, the fact that they happened has had a significant impact on the way that your understanding of the world and your life has occurred. Everything from increased security at airports uh, to certain positive ideas about uh, nationalism and support for the country, to certain negative and wrongful ideas and stereotypes that are more prevalent in our culture today about Muslims. There are good things and there are bad things that have shaped our culture and shaped the way that you live because of this past event that technically you weren't even a part of. In a similar way, the past event of Christ's life shapes our life today. If we are Christians through union, it shapes the way we think about the world, it shapes the way we live, it shapes the patterns of our behavior, but in a way that is even deeper than the way that 9-11 affects us as Americans. Because the only influence that we have from 9-11 to our life today is influence from culture and society, an influence in the political world. But in the case of union with Christ, the Holy Spirit is actually also making that connection. 
not merely a cultural connection, but in a deeper and more true sense, our life today is affected by what happened in Christ's life, so that our life follows the same pattern that Christ lived. I think that's the best I can do to explain this. But participation illustrates that this language of union, it can be pretty abstract and metaphorical. So one of our tasks going forward is to take this fundamental biblical idea of union and to split it out into different dimensions that we can think about in a more rational and philosophical way. So we'll get there. But for now, let me look at the fourth dimension of union, and that is the dimension of incorporation. This one is fairly straightforward. When we see language that we are Christ's body, Christ's that we are part of a building that Christ is the cornerstone for, that's the idea of incorporation. Uh, the corp, uh, central part of that word there actually comes from the Latin for body. So we are all being made into one body. I think a good way to illustrate this is actually uh, found in a painting that I would normally have shown you at the beginning of class. So again, if you're following along in the PowerPoint, you can go up to slide two. If not, maybe take a look at it later. But I have there uh, a painting from a man named Joseph Malamba Mandengi from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it is his depiction of the Last Supper. There are a number of interesting features of this painting, not the least of which is the fact that the disciples in Christ are depicted as Congolese which is really no less accurate than depicting Christ and his disciples as European or white American, as we typically see in art. Neither of those are particularly historically accurate. That's a bit of a tangent, though. The reason I'm singling out this painting for now is actually a different feature of the painting that I find quite interesting. Because if you look closely in the background, behind Christ, who is there with his disciples at this Last Supper, you will find various masks hanging on a wall. Now I admit, I don't know very much about Congolese culture, but I am told by certain art commentators that these masks are meant to depict connections with the ancestors. And so what Mulamba Mundingi appears to be trying to do is suggest that not only are the disciples present there with Christ at this Last Supper, but somehow all of the faithful people who have gone before and died are also there and present at the meal. And I think that's a, a beautiful artistic depiction of what Paul is trying to say through this incorporation aspect of union. We are all part of Christ's body, and what this means is there is a genuine spiritual connection that ties not only all living Christians together, but all of those Christians who have already died and gone to be with the Lord. We are connected in a meaningful and true and deep sense. So incorporation entails that union doesn't only mean I'm joined with Christ, but also it means that I'm joined with other Christians and that I should therefore act accordingly. Fifth, union refers to instrumentality. So what's an instrument? Well, a musical instrument is something that allows you to produce music. It is a means of producing a noise you could not otherwise produce. 
Though, again, if you're getting bored and stir-crazy with isolation, feel free to try and uh, learn how to play the violin with your mouth alone. Upload something on YouTube, send it out to the class, TikTok, something like that. Maybe you'll be famous. You can attribute the great idea to me off the cuff as I'm sitting here lecturing to a wall with nobody else to interact with. I'm going a bit stir-crazy, too. Back on track, an instrument is a means of doing something else. It's something that you act through to produce something you could not otherwise do. Music, you can also look at surgical instru instruments. So the scalpel, other surgical tools allow you to perform open heart surgery, for example, where a doctor alone without these instruments could not perform in that way. Similarly, when Paul talks about everything being in Christ. He's partly referring to Christ as an instrument. He is the one that the Father is working through to produce salvation. And if we are connected to that instrument, then we receive all the benefits of salvation. If we are not connected, then we do not. So a flute produces music. Christ produces salvation. A flautist, someone who plays a flute, is the one using the instrument of the flute. The Father is the one working through Christ for our salvation. So those are the first five dimensions of union, and they're the most complicated ones. Location, identification, participation, incorporation, and instrumentality. The good news is the last four are much easier to understand. The sixth is that of the Trinity. Basically, this says that when Paul talks about union, he means that we are somehow sharing in the life of the Trinity. Or as Fairbairn puts it, we are participating in the eternal father-son relationship by the work of the Holy Spirit. Number seven, when Paul speaks of union, he's referring to a mutual indwelling. Somehow I am really in Christ and Christ is really in me. This means that I am somehow in the Father's presence, where Christ is representing me at the Father's right hand. But it also means that Christ is somehow down here on earth in me, changing me to be more like him. Number eight is eschatology. This is a fancy word that refers to the end times. Unfortunately, due to the extended spring break and my week of sickness earlier in the semester, we're not going to be able to cover eschatology as much as normal. But eschatology does apply here because it tells us that our union with Christ is not fully complete until the end of history when Jesus comes back to earth. Finally, ninth, union refers to a spiritual reality. Your textbook uses the language of it as a vital and organic reality. Basically, what this means is that everything I've been saying is not just a metaphor, but it's something true. The argument goes something like this. If when I say that Christ is in me and that I am in Christ, if that's only a metaphor, then to be consistent, when I say the Holy Spirit is in me, I must only be speaking metaphorically. But if I don't actually have the Holy Spirit in me, then I don't actually have God working in me to make me holy. And therefore, I can't actually be holy, and I can't be saved. 
So it must be the case that when Paul is talking about being in Christ, or talking about the Spirit in us, that he means that something is truthfully happening in a spiritual level. Now, there's a lot that I don't know about the physical world, a lot of quantum mechanics, man, even a lot of Newtonian physics that I don't understand. But there's even more that I don't understand about the spiritual world, how that works. However it works, it must be true that there is a real spiritual connection between Jesus and between the Christian. And at the very least, Paul's language of union, the way that he talks about being in Christ, or being crucified with Christ, or us being the body of Christ. These ideas must mean the number of things I've just discussed. Our location has changed so that we are in the realm of Christ. Our identity has changed so that we have Christ's identity. We participate in the events of Christ's life so that they shape our lives today. We are incorporated into one body with Christ and with other Christians. Christ is the instrument through whom God works for us and for our salvation. This allows us to share in the life of the Trinity through a mutual indwelling where we are in Christ and he is in us, even though we know that this will not be a complete union until the end of history. So that's the doctrine of union in a nutshell. A few final notes here. First, note from your textbook reading, uh, Johnson is very clear that when he speaks uh, about union with Christ, when Paul does this, when Johnson does this, when other theologians do, they mean that we are joined with Christ's human nature. This depends upon the hypostatic union. Our humanity becomes like Christ's humanity. It does not mean that we become God or that we share in the divine nature. That's an important thing to keep in mind. Second, I'll point out that as you are reading Johnson and as we are moving forward in lectures, that Johnson likes to use a lot of vocabulary words um, that some of you may not be familiar with. And he'll define these throughout the course of um, his book, but he may not do it early enough for you. So to help you out with the reading, on PowerPoint 3.3, you can look at slides 12 and slides 13, where I have a few of these definitions of theology words printed out for you to help you to read Johnson. Now, I know that we are not um, doing our typical reading quizzes, but I do encourage you to try and complete the readings as they will help you do better on the tests, particularly given that we have less time in class. If you have any questions about the lecture, feel free to reach out to me. Again, we will have our scheduled Zoom meeting where we can discuss in person, uh, as well as a group me chat that will be set up. I will share the details by email if I have not already at the time you listen to this. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, I miss interacting with all of you, but hopefully these lectures are clear and helpful. And I wish you all the best in this second week of online learning at Sterling College. So until next time, be well.